come on a journey with a cinephile. Welcome to episode two of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your guide, David Garrett Jr., and I have another, what I think is a fun episode for you. I have six films to cover in my, what I've watched for this week, which will include what I consider a modern classic, as well as one of the more legendary films in the horror genre. I have a couple of anthology films that I checked out on Prime. And I have just some other just miscellaneous films that I randomly checked out this week. And the main event for this is what I'm kind of dubbing my Doctor Double Feature, as I will do reviews of this year's, and most recently in the theater, Doctor Sleep, as well as Zombie Holocaust, which I can kind of cheat a little bit as the American version of that is called uh, Doctor Butcher, MD. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I just want to kind of introduce this before I send you on a first musical break and we'll get into the films that I watched for this week.
Alrighty, welcome back. Um, to get into the films that I had watched for this week, the first one that I'm going to be covering is The Witch from 2015. This listed on the Internet Movie Database as a drama horror mystery. It's written and directed by Robert Eggers, and it stars Anya Taylor-Joy, Ralph Innes, and Kate Dickey. Currently, this is uh, rated on IMDb as a 6.8, and on Letterboxd is sitting in a 3.8. Uh, the synopsis is a family in 1630s New England is torn apart by forces of witchcraft, black magic, and possession. Now, this is actually the third time that I've seen this one. Um, I actually caught it in the theaters on its initial run, and then um, my last viewing here actually was back in the theaters as it was part of the Gateway's Horror 101 series. Now this is a pretty pop polarizing film in that there's some people that think it's great while others who kind of think it's overrated and that not a whole lot actually happens. I fall in the camp that I really love it. It takes a lot of my boxes um, with things like the religious aspect of it. I love that it's a period piece in such a bleak world um, in this olden times New England. And uh, other big thing is that there's just this unknown due to just a lack of science and just understanding of things. It also is interesting because uh, personally for my beliefs, I'm not very religious. So when I see in films where this kind of is almost a corrupting factor, because we actually have this family who is kicked out of the town that they're living in due to some of the things that the father did. And so they're forced to go out into the wilderness to kind of make their own because he wouldn't conform to what the city's council wanted to do but it's actually interesting though because for as pious as they're actually supposed to be there's so much hypocrisy in that this whole family actually is doing different types of sins it's just that they blame each other when they're not actually looking at themselves there's actually some really great writing in this as well in that there's so many early references that come full circle in the end and I really dig that. Kind of already covered this a little bit but we have the bleak landscape where they're needing to farm not only to feed themselves but also to use it as a way of trade. But there's a looming winter and their harvest didn't go nearly as well as they thought it would be. It's such a depressing life to see that they're living. And it just kind of makes it that much more amplified when all these bad things are happening. Uh, the acting's great across the board for me. Uh, I actually knew Dickie from Game of Thrones. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy at the time, I didn't really know a whole lot about her. Uh, but I kind of noticed that she has stuck around in the horror genre. So, I mean, I'm a huge fan of that. I thought she did a great job here. And, I mean, I just feel so bad for her with some of the things that is happening from her mother. Now, to kind of just wrap this up, I have to give a shout-out to two of my favorite podcasters and Dave Z and Mr. Watson, since I know that they are, you know, in love with this film, and for rightly so, and they're all about that clickety-clackety. So, what I can finally say here is that this one just gets better and better with each viewing and the more things that I kind of pick out from it, so I definitely have to come in at a 10 out of 10 um, for The Witch. And the second film that I'm going to cover this week is actually one that was reached out for me to um, review the sequel that came out for it. So to get into this, the next film is Horror Hotel, the movie. This came out in 2016. This is listed as a comedy horror sci-fi film. The director is Ricky Hess, and it was written by Al Hess. And it stars Tara Birkel, Deborah Childs, and Jordan D. Mears. 
It is currently sitting on IMDb as a 4.6 and on Letterboxd as a 2.4. This is actually an anthology film. And it actually looks like when I was watching it that these are actually just a series of shorts that were released online. And it looks like they were just compiled into this um, film. Uh, the problem that I have though is I really prefer for my anthology films to have a wraparound and this doesn't get it so that does hurt it for me. And I actually checked this one out because they wanted me to check out the sequel but I have this weird OCD where I need to actually see the original before that I can move on you know, to a sequel like that. Uh, and really the only connection between these actually is that they all take place in the same motor core uh, motel. Uh, so this is actually going to be six different segments that were made by Ricky Hess. And the first one is actually Aliens Stole My Boyfriend. This one starts off with Cindy as she's kicking out her boyfriend Roger during a breakup. Uh, but as they're actually going to, as he's actually going to leave, they encounter two cute alien women, Aliana and Minora. Now their spaceship actually crashes on Cindy's car as they're sitting there watching. And they get called back inside because Cindy wants to reach out to the shady car dealer that she bought it from in order to make sure that she's not responsible for it and that they are. Um, and while this is happening though, Roger is being hit on by these two alien women and Cindy doesn't like it so she decides to get her revenge. This does kind of feel like an EC Comics type film. It's actually kind of funny is that the aliens are stuck in the 50s because their planet is receiving TV signals from the 1950s so that's what they think life is on earth and they're actually both really attractive uh, the easy elements come from this though because Cindy decides to poison them and then we kind of see how everything plays out um, in the end which is actually quite fitting because it does all come full circle the second short is coma girl where we see a man Marvin pays off a janitor at a nursing home named Bob in order to um, sneak his wife out of the building in order for them to celebrate their anniversary. It takes a turn though when Bob shows up at the motel and tells Marvin that he's in love with her and that they should be together. Now this one doesn't necessarily fit that EC vibe and it wasn't all that great but I will say it was kind of interesting in kind of a creepy way and in the end Bob ends up getting his just punishment from what happens and it is kind of a little bit intriguing in that reason in that uh, regards and the next one is one called the problem with clones now this is a story where somebody who goes and hunts down people that jump their bonds named Cooper is looking for a woman named Georgia and he goes to this motor court in order to do so, but soon learns that she's actually one of six clones that are living in this area. And he is trying to get to the bottom of finding out where this woman is through meeting all of the sisters. Now, I actually have to give props in this one because Baby Norman is the actress that plays all six clones. And she does a great job at through makeup, costume, and... Just her performance makes them all distinct type characters where I kind of thought she did a really good job in conveying that to us as the audience. The fourth one is Brain Robbers in Love, where this is another tale that kind of incorporates elements of EC Comics in that we have an horrible older woman, Phoebe Bird, who is the head person at the second largest book publisher. She decides that she wants to switch bodies with a younger woman, Sylvia Bunch, 
in order to kind of do some corporate espionage. Uh, but there's actually a secret that Sylvia is harboring that she that I felt was a little bit too predictable though, and that's kind of what hurt my feelings on this. But I do have to give a shout out to both of the actresses that were in this one, as they did a really great job when they're both awake in acting like the other person before it kind of before they kind of switch bodies, which is kind of reminiscent of a film like Face Off. The next short is Four Eyes, which involves a paralyzed former military man named Four Eyes who is hired by Sid in order to murder his ex-wife. This is actually kind of more comedy-based, I would say, and it's a funny interaction as they're trying to plan out this murder and in the EC-type vibe how things don't necessarily go as planned and definitely take a turn that wasn't expected. And then the final short is one called Life After Men. This is a it's set in a futuristic world where all the men have actually been wiped out. We have two young women, Zoe and Alice, who fled from a place when the server that controls all of the world has went down. And we have two agents of the server named Villa Marks and Penelope Koppel, who go to search them down and come to the same motor court that they're at. This just has an interesting vibe, but the problem that I have with it is that they don't establish the world well enough and they try to just kind of do it through exposition and I just don't feel it and don't uh, don't really buy into it because of where they're staying and I mean their best aspect they're trying to do in making the technology feel that way is strapping some old cell phones to their wrist and it just didn't work for me and I just think that they could have just done better in I don't know try to make the place that it actually takes place look a little bit more futuristic because I just don't buy what we're seeing here. So just my final thoughts on it is that this isn't a bad one. Um, I definitely give the filmmakers credit for what they were doing here. There's some good elements, and like I said, I didn't really hate it. There's The acting is somewhat low budget, but I will say there are some good performance in there, so I do have to give credit there. Overall, though, I just have to say this is slightly above average, coming in at a 5.5 out of 10. Next, I'll actually move to the sequel, which is the one that was actually um, asked for me to check out, which would be Return to Horror Hotel. Um, that came out this year in 2019. It is a horror sci-fi film. It is directed by Ricky Hess and Brandon Thaxton. It is also written by Al Hess. It is starring Baby Norman, J. Michael Gray, and R.C. Seya. And this one, and actually the original one as well, you can catch both on Amazon Prime. This is much more of the same that we got in the, in the original. It has four segments, and it actually has a shorter running time. And I think that was actually what I liked a little bit better about this one, as I feel like they could flesh these stories out a little bit more. And they also um, all incorporate the motor court um, as well. And they don't have a wraparound story. The first one is Sleep Tight which this shows us three different rooms being interconnected. The first one that we see is Jake, who is a weightlifter and using supplements. And kind of what I gathered from what we see is that some of them are legal and, while others are illegal. And he finds, as things go on, that there are bed bugs under his sheets. And he figures this out because he has these cuts all over his back because it looks like he actually sells his sweat. Now, in another room, we have Ferd and Lorelei. Now, they're the reason that there are bed bugs in this motel, in that because they're actually using them to grind them up into a drug that they're selling, where if you actually put it with a cigarette and smoke it, it'll actually get you um, a different type of high. 
Now, the way that they're actually raising this, though, is that they have these buckets that they're keeping their legs in, and the bite bugs are actually biting and sucking the blood from it. And I have to say, there's actually some really good effects here on the wounds all over their legs. And the final room is actually Matt, Aunt Miriam, which is actually Baby Norman, as she's bringing her niece and nephew to Florida, so they're stopping off here. But we see she's not the greatest of um, aunts, and that she actually really isn't that nice to these children. And what we end up seeing is that these bed bugs are growing bigger and hungrier than normal. And the insinuation here is the supplements that Jake is the cause of this. Now I will say I actually really dug this as I thought it was a pretty cool concept. I'm a big fan of when you can take something normal like bed bugs and actually make them into a creature that is what we get here where it's where it's actually sucking the blood from these people to the point where they pass out and there's actually they incorporate the idea that their venom is what keeps people still asleep when they bite them at night. Now the only thing is they actually use cockroaches as the giant version of these bed bugs which I'll give it a little bit of a pass there. And this one also has kind of a meta feel as they're actually showing the original horror hotel movie on the television at different times throughout this uh, segment. That will take me to the second segment here, which is Guillotine. This definitely feels somewhat like a Twilight Zone episode where we actually have Doreen Gray and Colette as they go to a motel to meet El Sharko, who is from the previous film as well. He has a, trickin, a trinket that he's trying to sell, which is supposedly will make women beautiful. And the backstory here is that this is actually a piece of wood from the guillotine that actually killed Marie Antoinette. And some of the lore is that there's been multiple women that have used it throughout the ages, but one of the more famous ones is that Marilyn Monroe used it to help get her into Playboy. And we end up seeing these two women fight over it as Colette tries it on first and they make her even more beautiful, actually makes her beautiful as she kind of plays a mousy character to start. Now I like the backstory here and having the two women fight over this. The issue that I have though is that neither of these actresses are ugly, so it kind of is one of those things where they want me to suspend disbelief that they're not as attractive as they actually are. And, but I will say that the final image that we get is really cool as it involves a mirror and an image that's not necessarily there but we can see it, which I thought was kind of cool. And I also think that this is a little bit of a play on Oscar Wilde's The Portrait of Dorian Gray as having the main character in this one named Doreen Gray. Which will take me now to the third segment, which is No More is No Room to Die. And this is actually starts off with a young woman who is working in a bookstore named Johnny Ray. And she makes a bet with her boss that she can get into this room of a local hermit to kind of see what he looks like as nobody has seen him and any type of deliveries are just kind of left on his doorstep. Now she comes up with a plan using some old crutches, but she ends up hitting her head on the door and this actually knocks her out and she wakes up inside the room with the uh, character of it of Davy Jonas. And then this kind of goes like a Twilight Zone feel here as well. Now this one actually has an interesting story because I didn't pick up on it until I read the synopsis, but he's supposed to be a submarine sailor from World War II. I just didn't really get that idea, except I guess there was a picture, but I didn't really catch on to it. But it does have an interesting concept that he has isolated himself, much like he did in his days of being inside of a submarine. And he's kind of, once she comes in, is forcing him to catch up on the lost time that he 
really wasn't experiencing as he was held up in this room. And I also think there's an interesting little concept here that his name is very close to Davy Jones, which is a play on the fact that the bottom of the ocean is Davy Jones' locker. Then that brings me to the final story, which is Houdini's Hand. This shows us two thieves, um, Rufus and Tyrone, who had stole a hand that is mummified from another thief and is supposedly supposed to be Houdini's hand as it helps this thief to open safes and pick locks. And this one is another interesting idea. It just didn't really play out for me and this is actually my least favorite of all the segments. A cool effect for the hand later on in it, which I did enjoy that. And I did think it's kind of funny that the thief in the segment is called Stumpy Nixon and he is actually only has one hand. But he does play a menacing figure as he does keep calling this hotel room to talk to the two guys and we can kind of just hear his voice and he is threatening them that he wants the hand back as well as one of their hands in payment. Now overall, I do think that this as a film overall was better for me. Um, and I will give the filmmakers credit as it is a low budget effort, but I did think they did a pretty good job of it. So I would actually give this a 6.5 out of 10 overall. Moving on to another movie that I saw this week, which is Species 2. This comes from the year 1998. This is an action horror sci-fi thriller. This is directed by Peter Medak, which I was actually surprised to see was actually the director of The Changeling from 1980. This is written by Chris Brancate, and it's starring Natasha Henstridge, Michael Madsen, and Marge Hellenberger. This is sitting at on IMDb at a 4.4 and on Letterboxd at a 2.1. The synopsis is an astronaut gets infected with alien DNA during the first mission to Mars and runs amok on Earth. Press and Lara team up with a peaceful genetically re-engineered Sill named Eve to hunt the monster down. Now to start off, I enjoy the original. I'll admit that it could be in due part to my nostalgia from the age that it came out, because I actually remember seeing it when it first um, hit the movie channels back in the day. But I will say is I do remember trying to watch this sequel back when this one was released and turning it off about halfway through and just didn't really think it was all that good. So this actually makes it the first time watch for me to actually get all the way through it as I've had this on DVD for some time before finally checking this out. Now the first thing I liked for this one as a sequel is that it returned three of the stars from the original. Now they kind of cheat a little bit with Henstridge as... They bring her back as a different character, but because the other one was a genetically engineered version, it makes it a little bit different there. As they're actually bring her back, which is a little bit flimsy in the reasoning, is that they're trying to find a way to destroy their race of aliens if they were ever overrun, which I kind of feel like is just a cheap way just to bring her back for what they do later in the film. Now, but I will say is I do like the backstory that Mars had life on it and that this alien life form went there and actually wiped it all out. As with a sequel, you usually want to have some new mythology, which this one does, as I do like that they actually establish here that the alien life form is actually very symbiotic, but this does create a plot hole as well. There's a moment where blood is spilt by a doctor who is trying to figure out more about what might have happened to the astronauts while they were up in space and an arm comes out of the wall which doesn't make sense if they're going to go with this symbiotic relationship that they've established here now the main character is patrick and 
what is interesting about him is that they kind of establish that he's a little bit of a kind of a hornball and that he sleeps around with a bunch of women which does give us some good nudity which is a different t take on this one because in the original sill was trying to get impregnated so what I think they wanted to do here was actually kind of get away from that and actually have him sleeping with a bunch of different women and it creates a bunch of offspring and this also gives us a psychic connection with even this one so it can lead up to a final showdown that involves both of them. Now, this does have a little bit of some social commentary in that I, that I kind of enjoyed, as it does explore a deeper relationship between Patrick um, with his father, who is actually Senator Judson Ross, played by uh, James Cromwell, actually. Now, he wants his son to become president, but we actually kind of it kind of establishes that Patrick isn't the greatest person. But then there's a moment where he actually comes to his father and tells him that he hasn't been feeling right since returning from his mission, and Senator Ross actually just kind of goes off on him and tells him to kind of man up and that he's going to do what their plan has been this whole time. So I do kind of find it a little bit interesting that his father does actually kind of belittle him and doesn't really listen to what he's trying to tell him. Then going from there, this film is a little bit over-sexualized, but that's actually kind of something that we get in the original one, even though we don't really get as much sex, but that is what the Sill character is trying to do most of the time. And it's actually kind of interesting as well as we have some good actors here, but I almost feel like the performances for the most part are kind of just phoned in. And it kind of makes me a little bit sad because I do feel like this should have been a better film. The effects are fine. There's a little bit of wonky CGI, uh, which you kind of expect from, you know, the late 90s like this film came out in. I will admit, I still enjoyed this. It just wasn't as good as I kind of wanted it to be. So if this is, if you like the original, I would say give this one a viewing because I don't feel like it's that much of a step back. It's still not great. I feel like it's just slightly above average and I came in with a 6 out of 10 here. And the next one that I'm really excited to talk about is I actually had the chance to catch 1982's The Thing at my local theater. This is a horror mystery sci-fi directed by John Carpenter, screenplay by Bill Lancaster, and the story by John W. Campbell Jr. It's starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, and Keith David. Now, the synopsis here is a research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes their appearances of the victims. Now, I have to admit, I was late to the game here. I caught parts of this on TV, but I never actually saw this start to finish until a couple years ago. Now, this is actually my second viewing, and as I was saying, I got to I caught this at the Gateway Theater on 35mm. Now, this starts with a couple of Norwegians who are flying in a helicopter after a dog, and they're trying to shoot it as well as dropping grenades to blow it up. And it makes its way to a U.S. base where they're where the two Norwegians are actually killed when they start to shoot towards the Americans while trying to hit the dog. Now this dog isn't what it seems though. And what ends up happening is that the helicopter pilot, RJ McCready, flies Dr. Copper to the Norwegian base where they search around and notice that it's actually been burnt out and that there's nobody left alive there. And it's outside that they notice that there is two people that look like they're almost fused together, so they actually load this body onto the helicopter to bring it back for an autopsy. From here, they actually learn that the dog isn't actually what it seems and is an alien. It's been walking around and it's actually left alone where it goes into somebody's room and we don't know who that is, but we assume that something here has happened. 
and this is actually where one of my favorite parts of this film kind of starts to develop is you don't know who's human and who has been taken over by this alien now a test is set up but that is one of the more tense moments as they try to figure out you know who's human and who is the thing now i actually don't have a lot new to say about this as i'm pretty sure we've all heard a bunch of podcasts and whatnot about this film now, I will say that it's completely amazing, and I'm actually mad at myself for waiting so long to actually see it all the way through. Kind of helping out here is Carpenter just had an all-star cast to work with, and I mean that in front and behind the camera. Now, I think the acting is just wonderful. I think Russell is perfect for this kind of macho role that we get here, but it's interesting as he's not in charge at first, but he kind of is giving that command because the guy who is in charge kind of shows signs that... People don't necessarily trust him because of the test they're originally going to set up involves blood that is normal that is inside of a cabinet but when they actually get to it they've been cut and bleeding out so he is kind of to blame because he can't prove that he didn't do anything there and of course we also have Keith David who is just a wonderful actor and I'm really glad that he was actually in this one. Now, to kind of talk about some of the people behind the camera, Carpenter obviously is a legend, uh, you know, master of horror for sure. But it's actually the DP was Dean Cundy, who just did an amazing job here. I was actually kind of paying attention this time around since I knew kind of what happened. Just watching some of the shots and just how well he did of a job here. And then for the soundtrack, we have Ennio Morricone, who... I actually, the first time I saw this, was kind of surprised to see that Carpenter didn't do the soundtrack himself because he is something that he does really well. But this soundtrack here is just amazing. It's so subtle for the most part, but the baseline really gets your tension building, and I actually was just paying attention to it a lot this time as well, and it definitely just got my you know anxiety going. And I guess I can't get through this without talking about how great the effects are. They just look so real in this creature that doesn't actually exist, but they just do such a great job at making things that we see just look so alien. And it's just a real treat to actually see on film as well. Now, I haven't seen the original, The Thing from Another World, which this is actually technically a remake of. So that's actually something I'm probably going to do here in the near future, just to kind of give myself something to kind of compare even though I've been told that they really don't have a whole lot in common now if you happen to be listening to this and haven't seen this you definitely need to get on this immediately but if you haven't seen it for a while I definitely recommend giving it just a rewatch just kind of how good it is and just kind of give it such an even more deeper appreciation of it and I have to easily give this one a 10 out of 10 as this is actually probably in my top 10 now of all time Alright, and the last film that I watched for this week was The Wind of Fear, but it actually goes under the title Hasta el Viento Tiene Miendo. Now, this is a film from 2007. This is a drama horror mystery, and it actually is from Mexico. It is directed as well as co-written by Gustavo Mojino, and the other co-writers are Angel Pulido, Alfonso Suarez, and Marion P. Zezeskli. And it comes from the original screenplay from Carlos Enrique Tabiota. It is starring Martha Higarade, Veronica Langer, and Maria Aguilera. It is currently sitting on a 4.4 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd. The synopsis is a troubled teen is sent to a treatment center after two suicide attempts that has, and the place she goes to has a troubled past. 
I actually checked this out from a recommendation from my sister. She's a big fan of the star uh, Higurati, and I didn't really know uh, what this was actually about until checking it out. And I actually got the the DVD off of Netflix. Uh, this is an interesting film where we get Claudia tries to jump off of an overpass and is stopped from doing from that attempt, and then tries again to kill herself while she's at the hospital. She is then sent to this rundown mansion that is the treatment center. It is run by Dr. Bernarda, who's played by Langer, um, along with uh, Lucia, who is Monica Dion. And I feel we get almost a tamer version of like those boarding school films or even like women in prison films where you get some of those motifs, but not all of them are necessarily there, which will lead me to the first thing, which is the idea of forbidden love. Now, the crux of the story is that there's a young woman who hung herself, and her friend is still at this place, um, Josefina, who is played by Danny uh, Pereira, and she thinks it was because that her friend, um, Andrea, did not want to grow up. And the rumor that she is going, uh, that, or the story she is telling actually, is that she started her period that day, and that is why she killed herself. Now, there actually seems to be much more of the story than what her friend um, Josephina knew, and she actually had a relationship with Lucia. Now, there's also an issue with dealing with trauma. I have a feeling that two of the characters that are patients at this place, Jessica, played by Maria Fernanda Malo, and Sylvia, played by Maglia Bocelli. I think they were both molested, and it affected them in different ways. Where we get Jessica is, I would say, much more open about sexuality, where she actually gives a strip tease. Where Sylvia, on the other hand, I think has become a bully and has closed herself off when it comes to anything sexually because she was actually asked to do the striptease first in order to get these drugs that Jessica had, and that was the payment since they're locked away in this treatment center. And I'd also say we get a little bit of the haunted house aspect here. I did like how they give an explanation that it could be the supernatural event, but then it also has a logical explanation as well. But I do think how everything ends up playing out in the end, though, it definitely has um, a logical explanation for everything that is going on, and it actually makes sense, and it doesn't actually violate anything for the film for me. Uh, there's also an aspect of a reoccurring motif of menstruation. It is interesting because obviously the change that we had talked about with um, Andrea, but then also Claudia is actually not having her period anymore because of being anorexic where her body has shut down in that aspect, but this also comes back up uh, later in the film as well. I thought the acting was pretty solid here in this one, but I do have to say that Higurata's character I think had some issues for me and I think it's not even necessarily with her performance I think that was good I think it's more with the writing and how they set the character up I just feel like she opens up way too quickly during a therapy session when she's clearly been talking about how she doesn't like being that she's alive and that doesn't really care about anything not a bad film I actually really did like the build of the mystery I just feel like it was a little bit too slow for me um, I do have to say that there is a couple of the actresses that we do get to see topless, which is, you know, never a bad thing. And then we also get to see the main star as well 
in the nude, but we actually don't necessarily get to see anything as she does. They do well at hiding it. I would just say that overall, this film is slightly above average at a six out of 10. All right, and that will take us to the trailer for my first feature review of this episode for Dr. Sleep. Like me. I need you to listen to me. The world's a hungry place. A dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. I I always called it the shining. Welcome back. The next movie that I'm going to cover, if you couldn't tell from the trailer, is 2019's Doctor Sleep. This is listed as a drama fantasy horror thriller. This is written and directed by Mike Flanagan, and it is based off of the novel by Stephen King. It's starring Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, and Kylie Curran. And currently, at the time of recording this, it is sitting at a 7.7 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. And it's also listed on IMDb as a co-production in the United States and the UK. The synopsis here is years following the events of The Shining, a now adult Dan Torrance must protect a young girl with similar powers from a cult known as the True Knot, who prey on children with powers to remain immortal. Now as the synopsis says, we start back in 1980 and in Florida, where we have a young girl named Violet who goes to pick flowers. Um, around the area that her and her mom are currently staying. 
she meets Rose the Hat, and she kind of tries to show her a magic trick, but it actually gets quite creepy because every time Violet looks over, she notices more and more people kind of just watching over her until she's actually set upon by this group of people that are with Rose. It then shifts to um, Danny, who's also in Florida, as him and his mother have fled there after the events at the Overlook. Now, Danny is still haunted by what happened there, especially, um, as he's still seeing the spirits. Now, despite the death of Dick Halloran, he is still being visited by him and actually teaches him a way to deal with these spirits that he keeps having issues with, uh, especially Mrs. Grady, from, or also known as the woman in the bathtub. Danny hasn't actually talked since his time at the Overlook. We do get the trick that Dick teaches him, though. Helps him to overcome his early fears, and he actually goes back to being normal from that point on. The film then shifts us into the future, where Dan is now an alcoholic and a drifter. He actually has shades of his father here in him, which I didn't really pick up on until I kind of heard some podcasts talking about this, but he actually has some mannerisms that Jack Nicholson actually had from the original Shining film, which I thought was kind of a good touch and just shows how good of an actor that Ewan is. Now, he ends up going home with a young woman where we see him wake up next to her in a kind of, she has a pile of vomit by her. And we kind of get flashes of the previous night to show what kind of happened and brought them to this point. And as he's going to leave, he actually takes money from this young woman as when he opens his wallet, he sees his money is gone. So there's a little bit of kind of some interpretation here as if do you think he takes the money because of getting back at her if he leaves it since this woman does end up having a child. So I kind of... I personally think he ends up taking the money and I have read the novel some time ago but I'm not quite sure as what happened there. Now he takes a bus into New Hampshire where once he gets off he ends up meeting this man named Billy Freeman who's actually played by Cliff Curtis and he decides to take a chance on Danny to get help him get his life back on the right path by kind of finding the money for him to stay at this local boarding house where he actually lives and ends up taking him to some AA meetings as well. Also during this time, we meet a young woman named, or a young girl actually, named Abra Stone, and she actually can shine like Danny, but she is way more powerful. Now, we get introduced to her at a birthday party that her parents are throwing from her, and her parents actually get a taste of how strong she is when she tries to mimic a magic trick that the magician outside was doing where she has actually every spoon in the house is kind of floating there on the ceiling while her parents stare in disbelief. And I kind of actually think this is actually somewhat of a catalyst for her to kind of hide her power because it does frighten her parents. And as a kid, she doesn't want her parents to look at her differently, which makes complete sense. And at this time, she also starts to communicate with Dan by writing on this chalkboard that is actually a wall that is just painted black in Dan's room. And they kind of just converse back and forth from this point forward. It then shifts eight years into the future where we see that Rose the Hat and her crew are doing the same exact thing that they're doing now. And actually, they pick up on Abra's abilities while they're chasing after this kid in Iowa who's actually played by Jacob Tremblay. And it is at this point that they realize how powerful she is and how the steam, is, which is what they call the ability to shine, is how like, strong it is with her. So they definitely change their plans to try to find her. And... 
I should also point out here that we get to see kind of how they operate in that they're kind of like vampires in that they eat this the shine from it, but they also have abilities of shining themselves. Like we get to actually see this young lady snake by Andy as she gets turned over, where she's what they call a pusher, which she forces people to kind of do things like almost like a Jedi mind trick is the best way that I've heard somebody else describe it. Now, going from this point, I should probably lead off stating that I really dig The Shining, the movie. I read the book back in high school, so I don't remember a whole lot of it outside of kind of the ending and some of the things that were a little bit different. And I would actually say The Shining is in the top ten of my favorite films of all time. And I also really dig um, Stephen King as I've read all of his novels that I could get my hands on, including uh, Dr. Sleep which I think I might have already stated here, but just wanted to make sure that I did say that. And kind of going back to this film here, I also really dig Mike Flanagan, especially what he's been able to do with Stephen King's works that he's already had uh, the ability and the privilege to take over. And I would actually argue that he's actually a modern master of horror because every film that I've seen him do has, I've really dug. And I mean, even his worst one, which I believe most people would say is Ouija Origin of Evil, he didn't have a whole lot to work with there. And I think he turned in a sequel or a prequel that is way better than the original. And I actually really dug that movie still. Now with that out of the way, this seems to be the best way of meshing Kubrick's Shining with what Stephen King hated about it, but then also meshing it with this new novel, Dr. Sleep, here in the perfect way possible where I think you kind of get everything that you needed from the original movie into the novel that Stephen King wrote here. And I think it even kind of expands on it a little bit if I'm going to be perfectly honest. I'd say the first thing that I want to cover here is the acting. I've already kind of brought this up, but McGregor did a great job. I think he really embodies a broken Danny trying to make his way in this world where he really didn't have a purpose. And we kind of see that he's trying to almost make up for the sins that his father could never overcome, especially with his alcoholism. And I'm not going to lie, there is a speech he gives at AA when he's talking about getting his eight-year chip, and it actually kind of made me tear up. And I mean, as I was kind of saying, you get to feel that hurt and pain that he's grown up with and is trying to overcome and just be a better person. Going from there, I would also say that Ferguson, who plays Rose the Hat, did an amazing job as well. There's this odd portion of me that was attracted to her, but also realizing that she's a complete monster here, so it's definitely nod to her performance is how well she did in it that she could kind of make me feel both ways like this and i mean as i said she's just an amazing villain in this one oh and also something interesting i kind of picked up on here is that her powers seem to be very comparable to danny's the problem ends up being that he turned to alcoholism and then just growing up with this trauma that he's dealt with I think he kind of loses his a bit where she's became this creature that feeds off other people that have the ability to shine. So I feel like hers is still more honed and still more pure than what Dan's would be if he kind of made that same exact change. Now, of course, Abra is more powerful than both of them. So that's just kind of something that I kind of felt is what this film was trying to portray to us. Which, speaking of Abra, I thought Kieran did a great job. Uh, taking on this character, being ch for me, child, child actors can definitely be hit or miss. 
but I was definitely impressed with her. Uh, she does some things that are beyond her age for sure, and part of that is there's a scene later in the film that I won't spoil where she acts more adult because she's mimicking somebody, and to show that range at her age is definitely impressive there, and on top of that, watching something that happens in this film really has an uh, effect on her, and I kind of like to see how dealing with this really makes her grow up probably beyond the years that she should have but having the power that she does I can definitely understand why she would grow up a little bit faster than she should be unfortunately I also want to give some shout outs to some of the other actors in this film as um, Alex Essos plays Wendy Torrance we get Jocelyn Donahue who I'm absolutely in love with who plays Abra's mother uh, Henry Thomas actually is playing Jack Torrance here and then we have Zahn McLaren and Emily Ellen Lind, uh, who are both part of the True Knot. I bo thought both of them did an excellent job here. Now, as I've kind of already went over the story and what I kind of think about it, this film actually has a runtime of about two and a half hours, which I definitely think was warranted. I actually found myself never getting bored, as it kind of just moves through everything at a really good pace, and there's actually a lot here to unravel, so I definitely think they really deserved having you know, that long of a movie. And another thing else this film does that I really dig is we actually get to see the inside of a character's minds. The first time I ever remember seeing this done is actually from another King novel when they did the Dreamcatcher movie, which looking back I know wasn't that good and I haven't seen that for some time, but we get to see things like filing cabinets where they keep all their memories as the, and actually the longer a person has lived, the bigger their library is to per se so i kind of thought that was a kind of a cool thing and there's another movie that i actually saw earlier this year where we get something very similar to this as well i don't know what it is about it but it's just something that i really dig seeing a visual representation of a person's mind um, moving from there i want to say uh, the effects i thought were good for the most part there was no real glaring issues here where i know there was some cgi but i thought it looked pretty good for what they needed it for on top of that, uh, there's some really good practical effects here as well. And I would say that the soundtrack is great in this film, too. We definitely get songs that are used in the original that are just updated, and I absolutely love that. I almost felt myself giving it a fist pump when it was happening, just with the glee that I had, as it definitely brought a smile to my face. And they also get some uh, shots that were used in the original film that are get updated. I don't really want to spoil this, but there's like an interview that we see where it definitely looks exactly like it did when Jack was interviewing for the job at the Overlook. And then we also get the opening shot redone, just done at night this time around. Now, some things I just wanted to say before I end this review is there's some fun Easter eggs. An example is that Abra lives at 1980, which is the year that The Shining was released. Uh, the cat that lives in the hospice where Dan works, his name is Ozzy, which is short for Ezreal, which I think is interesting. Um, once you figure out what happens at this hospice here, is that that's the name of the Angel of Death. Uh, Snake by Andy, who joins the True Knot, is a pusher, like I said earlier, which is actually the same exact abilities that are used in Firestarter by Charlie. Uh, hers is, allows her to create fires, but in this case, it allows Snakebite to kind of be able to tell you what to do. To just finally wrap this up, I think Flanagan did an excellent job with this film here. There were some changes that were made to make the film better, which I think is a great job. And he really does blend the novel into 
matching up to things that were done in Kubrick's film. And I just think overall this is just a good film. So if you haven't given this one a viewing, I would definitely recommend that. My rating for this would be a 9 out of 10. Now I'm going to take you to the trailer for the second half of this Doctor Double Feature. No! Oh, don't do this to me, please, Doctor! Patient screamed, disturbing me, performed removal of vocal cords. His name is Dr. Butcher, MD, medical deviate. He has perverted the science of medicine for his own maniacal means. <laughs> Dr. Butcher, MD, medical deviate. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. What it's like to pass from life to death and death to life. See Dr. Butcher's diabolical surgery. You must have a psychopathic deviant in the hospital. See him mutilate patients with his murderous scalpel. Dr. Butcher loves New York. There are so many attractive patients to operate on. I could easily kill you now. But I'm determined to have your brain. It'll be the culmination of my career. Dr. Butcher, medical deviant. He loves to operate on beautiful women. I'm on the verge of discovering the key to, to increasing man's lifespan by over a hundred years. Prepare the operating table. I'm anxious to experiment on a male Caucasian brain. Well, the time has come for you to play your part in this momentous occasion. Science must surmount all obstacles, and this requires certain sacrifices. It will comfort you to know that generations to come will reap great benefits from my experiments. Dr. Butcher, MD, medical deviant. He's a depraved, sadistic rapist, a bloodthirsty, homicidal killer. And he makes house calls. Dr. Butcher, MD. Now you just heard the trailer for Zombie Holocaust, or the alternate title and alternate cut of the film, uh, Dr. Butcher, MD, Medical Deviant. This came out in 1980. Uh, this is a horror film. It was directed by Mariano Girolani under a pseudonym of Frank Martin. The story is by Fabrizio De Angelis. Uh, the screenplay by Romano Scandrantio. And this is starring Ian McClella, Alexandria Della Colli, and Sherry Buchanan. This is currently sitting on a 5.2 on the inter and IMDb, a 2.7 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is an expedition in the East Indies encounters not only the cannibals they were looking for, but also something worse. Now, I did doctor that a little bit, even though I will kind of reveal kind of the reason I did doctor the synopsis, because I do feel like it was pretty heavy spoilers. Uh, but there's not a whole lot to this film, so I kind of just wanted to at least 
not play my hand immediately, even though most of you probably have already seen this film. Now, this is one that I learned about through podcasts. And what I kind of gathered from just listening to them and kind of seeing some of these Italian films is that they would take what was popular and then rip it off. So this actually feels like three movies that were meshed together, or at least three types of movies that were meshed together. Now, it starts off as a cannibal film. We see a corpse that is being held in a morgue, and we see that someone comes in and cuts one of the hands off. And the next day, they actually discover this as they're going to do a kind of autopsy for a class. And through this, we actually learn that this is not the first time this has happened at this hospital. Now, one of the doctors that is here is Lori Ridgway, who is played by Deli Kali. We learn that there's another body, actually, soon after that has his heart ripped out. And they actually end up laying a trap to catch who's doing this. And it actually turns out to be an orderly named Tyrion that actually jumps out of the window and kills himself. And it's at this time that they find a tattoo on his chest that actually also matches a dagger that Lori has in her apartment that was used for ritual sacrifices. And through just some different scenes, we actually learn that Lori has a degree in anthropology. We've actually seen her work with another professor, uh, Stanford, that is played by the writer of the screenplay, who kind of gives her different little things to do to that involve her anthropology degree. Now, for the actual film, though, she ends up teaming up with a Dr. Peter Chandler, who's played by McCullough, as well as his assistant, George Harper, who's played by Peter O'Neill, as well as Susan Kelly, who is played by Buchanan. Now, we actually see Susan earlier as she ends up showing up at Lori's apartment, and Lori's not really sure how she figured out about some of the things that were going down, and she actually forces her way into Lori's apartment, and they kind of butt heads a little bit. But together, this group is going to head for this island called Quito, which is where the orderly was from. And the tattoo that they actually found as well is associated with that island, as Quito is the name of the religion or the god that they actually follow on that island. Now, from there, they actually head to this island, or they head to the main island that is in the area. And this is where it actually really starts to feel like a cannibal film. We see the jungle a little bit, and some horrible things happen where Lori goes in her room to. I believe go to bed and actually finds a head in underneath her sheets and a bunch of blood which is kind of funny though before that we get a kind of thank you movie where we actually see her nude and we actually see somebody looking in on her that is a native islander it is also during this time that they meet a dr obero who is played by daniel o'brien as he gives them a guide by the name of mulatto played by daca that will take them to Quito. But on their little journey here, they end up having engine trouble and stop off at a different island. But it actually kind of turns out there's a little bit of a nefarious plan here as this island they end up landing on is actually Quito. Now this is where this film takes a turn. We end up getting that there are zombies on this island as well as a mad scientist that they have to try to survive in order to kind of get back to their freedom. Which is where I kind of feel like this is where it meshes three different films into one with the cannibal zombie and mad scientist. Now I do have to say, the biggest thing that I really enjoyed about this film are the effects. We get people being torn apart, some eye trauma, and even the zombies don't look all that bad either. Now the blood is a little bit bright red, but I'll be, I'll have to admit, I have a bright spot for this as going back, my favorite film is Dawn of the Dead where they definitely have orange blood, so 
the blood being a little bit off color doesn't really bother me. And then we also, like I kind of touched on a little bit earlier, we get some nudity from Delicale as well, which definitely was worth the price of admission as well. Now, this is kind of an interesting look on the zombies here, because around this time is when they really started to take off with the you know Romero-type zombies where they're just reanimated corpses. This one actually kind of feels a little bit more like voodoo zombies, especially because they're being controlled, and I actually thought that was a pretty good take and kind of doing something a little bit different that you don't see a whole lot anymore as this was more of, you know, kind of the 50s and earlier than that type films. Now, some interesting things is I actually learned that the soundtrack from this was actually borrowed from Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, which I've never seen, but it is kind of funny that they borrowed it. I actually thought it worked for this film. Uh, it definitely kind of gives you that Italian feel to it. And I actually also read that the American version replaced it with a more cheesy soundtrack, which I haven't seen, you know, the Dr. Butcher cut fully yet. So that would be definitely something that I want to check out here in the future to kind of figure out, you know, why they did that. And to kind of see how it makes the film feel differently from the version that I saw. But I will admit, I did actually seek out the uh, beginning to the American version, which is much different because it actually reveals from that opening that there are zombies in this film as we see a gravestone as it's being shook back and forth, and then we get different looks to the zombies. And actually, they take footage from later in the film and actually show those zombies very early on. So I did think it was kind of interesting that the different cut has a different intro, and it does give the film a different, definitely a different vibe to start off with. Um, something else that I thought was interesting is I thought certain locations looked familiar, and as I was looking into this, it actually seems like they were using the same exact sets that you would find in Lucio Fulci's Zombie, which is a film that I grew up watching. And it's also interesting is that McCullough also starred in that film, and I actually have the poster for that in my room. And it's interesting is that D'Angelo's or D'Angelis actually worked on that film as well. And now. I don't really have a whole lot to delve into this film because it's really just kind of the visuals and things to that nature. But I will say is I did have a lot of fun with this one. There is a bit of sleaze, as it which I don't mind actually. It meshes three different genres together, which I found interesting. And I also do like is that from what I've gathered is that there is real no conclusive evidence that there are cannibal tribes in the world. So I do like that they give a reasoning as to why this tribe is actually practicing cannibalism. And I will say, if you dig Italian films, especially of the zombie or cannibal genre, I definitely would recommend giving this a viewing if you haven't. Um, I actually found this to be, like I said, a fun film, and I enjoyed this virtual watch of it. So my rating for this one is going to be a little bit higher than both of the ones previously as a 6.5 out of 10 for me. And that'll take us to one last musical break as I will come back and end the show.
want to thank you for coming on this journey with me as I close out this show here. And just to kind of do some of the housekeeping, um, you can find this podcast on all of your podcatchers. Um, if it's not appearing on the one that you use specifically, if you could just copy the link that I will have in the show notes, it should bring it up that way. You can find my written reviews for at Reviews of the Dead, and the link will also be in the show notes. Facebook, you can find me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU, all one word. Same thing goes for Instagram, where I'm David OSU87. I've also got the show now on FlipChat, with the join code is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And as I've already kind of said, I will also have that little thing there where you can just copy and paste that into that to find it much easier. Once again, thank you for coming on this journey with me, and I hope you have a great day with whatever you do. And this is David Garrett Jr. signing off.